Hey, everybody, and thanks again for joining us for another episode of the OIG Roundtable. Everybody's here. The band's all together. We've made our decision that we are going on tour once again, and uh, we're here for band practice in the Advice Corporate Headquarters. As always, I've got my compadres for the OIG Roundtable. I've got Wade McFall, retired assistant special agent in charge of the LA field office and a member of our SIU investigative team. Jason Eisengrind, the retired uh, senior executive from HHS OIG and the retired Western UPIC director, and now our special director in charge, working on some special projects for a client. And last but not least, Matt Kachansky, Jason's counterpart uh, from HHS OIG and the retired Northeast UPIC director, and now a manager on our investigative team, and currently actually working on one of our um, uh, client deliverables of one of our SIU teams to help with some process improvement. So <clears throat> good stuff for today. I think, you know, the topic um, that I think we want to talk about is sources of information. Um, and, you know, I really, I put those into a couple of different categories. I put them into open sources of information. Um, and there's actually a bunch of courses out there you can take on open source intelligence, uh, right? It involves doing things like doing deep web searches or, or dark web searches for information, but there's open sources of information. We'll talk about a little bit of that, of those proprietary sources of information. Um, and then organizational sources of information. And all three of them have, you know, important, important pieces of the puzzle and how they're and how they all work. Um, you know, but ultimately when we're talking about these sources of information, you know, what we always think is an important piece is uh, is knowing that sources of information can be human sources of intelligence. It can be documents, it can be things that are online, but part of that is knowing also who your audience is going to be. <clears throat> so typically at the OIG, our audience was the US attorneys office but you know you can go and, and have interactions and have investigative analysts and have people that are going to help you with cases and develop intelligence and uh, source of information through things all the way down to the local resources and so wait I want to start with you because obviously you know when, when we're talking about from the investigative perspective you're talking about sort of this hierarchy in the law enforcement perspective as an OIG agent our hierarchy was starting with the U.S. Attorney's Office and then kind of working our way down and one thing that made um you guys unique over LA was that not every case went to the U.S. Attorney's offices and that as as a general source of information both ways in that communication for information was also being able to understand who your local opportunities to you know for prosecutions were like the LA city or the LA county office for example would have prosecutors and intelligence people and and the ability to share information and gather intelligence right yeah, I mean, we like you said, we would the U.S. Attorney's Office was always our first choice, and that was kind of our our bread and butter. That's where we initially took everything. But once they would decline something, whether it would be because of a monetary threshold or just some element of the case that they didn't like, uh, and frankly, it could have been just their caseload, we had other options, and we would go from there. Probably our second choice was usually. The Mafuku had prosecutors of the State Department of Justice, so we would take a lot of stuff there, work jointly with them, and work it there, prosecute it there. Uh, but we did we did branch out a little bit. We had cases in um, like various projects with the sheriff's office, so we would go to the the DA's office a lot of times. We had cases prosecuted there, and as you alluded to, we even had some cases that had to do more with the city and that it they were patient dumping cases where the um, ambulance would 
drop people off at, like in Skid Row, and we ended up using uh, the LA City Attorney's Office was very interested in that, so we ended up working those uh, with them. But not only the prosecutor-wise, I mean, we would try and get, and I think most of the, the regional offices did this, but if you could get assistance from other agencies, you know, if it, we, we always tried to, if there was a Medicaid nexus, we always worked it with the Mufuku. If there was some kind of, uh, you know, if there was even a couple claims that were through, um, you know, federal employee, you could get um, different different OIGs uh, and and based based on other like uh, strengths of different agencies. Like if it was a very audit intensive um, investigation, we might have somebody from either our office of audit or a lot of times IRS had people who had a lot more extensive uh, experience in accounting than than like I did or some of my agents. So not only the prosecutors, but we would try and bring in agents with different specialties from different agencies to help as well. And it's it's one of those buzzwords they always use, but it really was like a force multiplier. If you could get somebody who had way more experience in auditing and you're doing a very complex, you know, money laundering case, it didn't hurt to have an IRS agent or somebody who's got and it could be just somebody else from OI, but somebody who has that uh, skill set to bring them on board. Yeah, I mean, it's an important piece of this is that sources of information can come from a variety of places and people need to sometimes think outside of the four corners of their laptop, right? Like being able to speak to prosecutors from other um, prosecutorial organizations outside the U.S. Attorney's Office, speaking to agents from other organizations, investigators from other organizations that, you know, sources of information aren't necessarily just the pieces of paper that are, you know, that are there. Um, so, Jason, I want to go to you because, you know, part of that is, you know, it, does there need to be a standard operating procedure? Does there need to be a policy on things like this? You know, when we're talking about the variety of sources of information, obviously the biggest thing is that once you've tapped into a source of information, whatever whatever that may be, is being able to appropriately document where you got that information from and and what that intelligence might be. Um, so what's your what's your thought on, you know, from a documentation perspective? Uh, obviously, some of these sources of information are going to be open sources, right? Open meaning publicly available records, whether you have to pay for them or not, right? So, you know, there are several services out there, uh, law enforcement databases and others that are that are, you pay for the service, right? If you want to get information about a criminal history or driver's licenses or business records or things like that, they're publicly available and sometimes there's a fee for getting those. But, you know, does, does all of this require there being, um, obviously the documentation is important, but do all of these things require there being yet another policy or another directive, or is this just something that becomes homegrown kind of gumshoe investigative stuff? I think that we have to realize that investigation is a profession. It isn't, you know, it isn't something that could be done through artificial intelligence. It's not something that you can just, you know, uh, make up as you go along. So, you know, there has to be a reliance on the competency of the investigators. And along with that would go significant training about sources of information amongst other things, but certainly sources of information is uh, is a is a core component of uh, um, uh, conducting a solid investigation. On that that being said though, there should be some 
definitely some policy about it, but then there should be some templates. You know, there are going to be certain sources that just, you know, have to be done always, right? Like, you know, checking the OIG exclusion list on a website, you know, that that's one example, getting the Secretary of State record. And you mentioned about internal sources. So certainly you're going to want to be able to get those, um, you know, the, the contract or the provider enrollment form. And of course, that all has to be documented in the case file. Right. And, and, you know, so the one thing that you brought up, which is an important piece is, you know, what are the internal documents, right? So some of that's going to be, we'll call that proprietary. And so, you know, Matt, I want to go to you because when we're talking about a lot of that stuff, proprietary and organizational, you know, you're working right now <clears throat> with Jason on a bunch of process improvement things. Um, and we're doing some, uh, in, some process improvements even in-house here. And so, you know, the thing that we always talk about is, the very first thing that you should do when you're looking to open up a case is what are the internal documents that are there, the proprietary documents? You know, we always say to our SIU uh, plan uh, people that we're talking to from a process improvement perspective, we always tell the investigators one of the very first things that you need to do is pull the contract. What is the agreement, right? In the Medicare world, it's the 855 form. And, you know, that's going to give you some information. But from a from a plan perspective, non-government perspective, that contract is a wealth of information. At the minimum, it's going to give you information about what is the guidance that the provider needs to follow when submitting a claim, meaning are they following CMS guidance? Is there Medicaid guidance? Is it an NCD? Is it an LCD? Is it plan specific? What, what is it? Um, but it's part of that workflow of being able to understand as a source of information, what are your proprietary databases? What are your proprietary sets of information? And what are organizational documents that are out there as far as plan policies and the like? But you know, part of that is also understanding all of that information. And from an investigator's perspective, you may not know all of those databases, but you've got to at least have some ability to be able to converse in that global sense with all of those different stakeholders. Absolutely correct. I mean, you, you can't underestimate the importance of getting the contract or the enrollment form or credentialing papers or whatever they might say, whatever they might be called. Namely, because in some instances, it'll have special provisions to allow a specific provider to do certain things that are usually against the policies of the corporation or the, or the plan. But for this provider, it's allowed. And we've come across many cases where we get to the goal line and all of a sudden they pull out their contract. And it says, oh, we're allowed to build this way. And it just goes up in smoke. Getting that up front is is hugely important. What else is important in that type in that type of documentation are associations. You know, look to see who are the corporate officials, who is the billing, uh, the, the billing service for that provider. They should be all listed on there. Who is the registered agent for this for the Department of State? Um papers that they file for incorporation, all of those things can be built into a larger case because we've had many cases where, whether it's the registered agent or the contact person or the or the billing person are in common amongst many providers where there's nothing else in common except all the billing or most of the billing is suspect. Oh, here's the link. And if you want to make a better case presentation to whatever prosecutor you're taking it to, you show them that the scope of the fraud 
is bigger and you're able to visualize that through some link analysis that you've created through public or organizational paperwork that's available to you, it makes a huge difference in how how the case is viewed by the prosecutors because it's you're raising ROI, you're raising the scope, you're raising the breadth of it just through showing how it's all interconnected. The other thing is some of the stuff you might be able to get from your plans or through the, you know, for the federal government through the max, prior education, prior overpayments that might have been paid, program integrity history of that provider within those plans. That goes a long way toward escalating the case in the eyes of whoever you're presenting it to or whatever actions you're going to be taking against that provider because it's showing they had prior knowledge. Yeah, I don't know. We've talked about this. Uh, I think we've we've really we've run it into the ground many times, but we've had these very lengthy discussions about on the CMS space, the targeted uh, proven education, the TPE, and how that information can be inordinately valuable in trying to prove intent, right? The first time you do something, it's a mistake. The second time it's an accident. The third time it's from intent. And so having that prior education becomes a very important piece of the puzzle because you're showing that this provider has already been admonished or educated about it, you know, previously. Yeah, I mean, from a from a sources of information perspective, I think that oftentimes um, internal information is oftentimes greatly overlooked or the value of free information. Oh, so Jason, I want to go back to you to kind of wrap this up is that one of the things in, in talking about this is, you know, and Matt kind of brought this up as common threads and common links and this whole premise of the straw ownership. And so, you know, back in January, a new law was passed called the Corporate Transparency Act. Um, our general counsel, Julie Janeway, and I did a very quick video primer on this in January. You can get it off of our YouTube channel where we talk about it. But um, there's been a lot of talk, a lot on LinkedIn. Every lawyer and their mother has been talking about it because it's it's such an important piece of the puzzle. And a lot of smaller practices that really don't have effective compliance plans, that don't have a robust internal compliance auditing function, are, are going to you know be in a position where they have to do some of this filing. And so the issue involving straw ownership and a lot of that public records and creating that those links. And you know, last week we talked about the two billion dollar catheter fraud schemes and how six or seven, you know, four or five businesses across seven states that all were seemingly interconnected, um, you know, can be a piece of that puzzle. And you really can't, you really can't uh, discount the importance of that straw ownership and being able to to get to the bottom of some of that through public sources. So Jason, for that final piece of the puzzle, and I know that the law enforcement liaison becomes a piece of this, but also having someone in-house as kind of an investigative analyst or an intelligence analyst can really help to help put some of those pieces of the puzzle together at a fairly low price point because you're dealing with a lot of, you know, potentially publicly available information included with your internal proprietary information can really help to shape uh, who the owners of a company are and maybe that cross-pollination that goes on in those fraud schemes. Well, your point about uh, basically uh, fractional ownership of a position is really key here because many SIUs uh, can't support a, um, you know, having a dedicated full-time 40-hour week uh, law enforcement liaison, maybe a 40-hour week data analyst. There could be any number of uh, uh, medical review services. Uh, they're all expensive but necessary services. And so there is an advantage to 
you know, to going through the rent versus buy analysis, do you buy a resource, meaning that, you know, you have someone in-house or you, um, you know, borrow it um, fractionally from somebody, some entity like Advise? And that said, you know, getting back to your point about the straw ownership, uh, the case only gets much more solid. And this is to, you know, Matt's really good information as well. It only gets much more solid when you can show that there's a network of players in this. You know, a standalone um, uh, subject, it's certainly it's an important uh, thing that you want to mitigate. But the reality is, you know, when you see that there's a, um, a conspiracy, even if it's not fitting the definition of the law, but rather the concept of people working together to uh, to uh, perpetrate a crime, it gives you at the very least uh, great witnesses that you're going to want to uh, encounter and document. So long and short of it is, uh, but you know, you're going to need to be in the field. You're going to be needing to speaking to these people and documenting the the information that they have. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, from the straw ownership perspective, you know, I worked on a very large case involving mail order diabetic testing supplies and um, the, the, the owner of the company moved on to doing mail order topicals, lidocaine and the like. And what this individual was doing was he was going out and he was buying up failing pharmacies around the country. And we talked about this last week through a change of ownership, right, maintaining the ownership. But what he was doing was he was creating new LLCs in the states and he was putting as the managing member of the LLC, he was putting those in the names of employees that worked for him. And so, you know, if you actually looked at the LLC paperwork, the actual owner wasn't on any of the paperwork. It was in the name of an employee. And honestly, I was able to piece that together because I had a couple of in-house Medicare documents. I had some 855 forms. I had some, um, I, they had a DME company. So I had some of the stuff from the National Supplier Clearinghouse um, on on sites. And so we were developing through entirely a combination of publicly available information and in-house information from CMS. We had the names of a bunch of people that were key employees of the provider outside of any of the law enforcement um, interactions that we had to get names of people and, and state related databases and things of that sort, I was able to make connections with primarily public information and some inside information from CMS to be able to identify these straw owners. So you can do this stuff with just a little bit of ingenuity, a little bit of you know forward thinking, you know, things like LinkedIn, for example, where people list the company that they work for. I think, you know, I was able to identify probably a dozen employees and a good chunk of those employees wound up having their names on LLCs in different states. Um, and it wasn't through anything other than just going on to LinkedIn and finding these people on LinkedIn. So there is a lot of stuff out there, open source intelligence. There's a number of courses you can take out there. There are a bunch of services where you can pay to do deep web mining and things of that sort. Um, but uh, you know the gumshoe work of sitting at your laptop 
and just doing some Google searching. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff out there. Google is a very, for example, I'm saying Google, but Google is a very, very powerful database engine. And if you can go online and learn how to use Google the right way, you can really get very deep into the weeds on getting some really good information. So there's a lot of information out there that costs very little. Having um, intelligence investigators or investigative analysts, so to speak, um, to help with doing some of that can really separate out the work that an investigator does from that in investigative development to let somebody in that 30 or 45 days that you need before you can close out a case or make a decision kind of help with some of that backstory to make things you know kind of where they are so it really is this kind of um cornucopia of things that are out there whether it be internal data whether it be you know someone like wade going and having conversations with local law enforcement or regulators to just remembering that fraud, waste, and abuse is a 360-degree piece of the puzzle, you can really start to develop some really good background on your provider uh, when there's an FWA case out there. So as always, it's good stuff. We never have enough time. That's why we do these every week, I suppose, right? So always good seeing you guys. Again, uh, we thank everybody for tuning in to this week's OIG Roundtable. And if you're not getting our newsletter, please send us a line. Hello at advise, A-D-V-I-Z-E, health.com. We'll get you signed up for the newsletter. Uh, you'll be able to get our podcast every week. You can get it on YouTube, off of our YouTube channel, off of Spotify. Uh, we have a great LinkedIn Live that is uh, coming up. And that LinkedIn Live is going to be talking about uh, data and data analytics and why your leads are weak. Um, so if you are missing that, by the time you see this on Friday, you will have missed it. But it'll be it is being recorded and it is being deployed out on our newsletter. So you'll be able to catch that. We've got a lot of really good LinkedIn Live scheduled over the next couple of months. And as always, we appreciate everybody taking the time to listen to us pontificate uh, and hopefully make your SIU operational work a little bit better. So till next time, we'll see you on the next OIG Roundtable. Thank you. Thank you.